Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Witness Docs from Stitcher. All episodes of Unfinished Deep South are available to binge listen on Stitcher Premium. Premium listeners get an ad-free experience, can listen to all the episodes of Unfinished Deep South right now, and play a key part in supporting our show and reporting. You can get a free month trial of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com and signing up with the code WITNESS. So if you want to see how the entire story unfolds right now, that's stitcherpremium.com, promo code WITNESS. In 2007, the FBI opened an investigation into the killing of Andrew Anderson, the 16-year-old boy who was chased by a posse of white men and shot in Marion, Arkansas in the 1960s. But the feds never got very far, never turned up any new information. And they also never talked to the little girl at the heart of the case, the one who Andrew had allegedly assaulted. But that girl was so central to figuring out what happened that day we felt like we had to at least double-check and search for her ourselves. In our work, we often found things the FBI had missed or simply hadn't bothered to look for. And only she could tell us if she had actually been attacked or if Andrew was involved. She was also the only one who might know if her stepfather, Sam Burns, had really killed Andrew. And she might know if he had anything to do with the lynching of Isidore Banks. No. The number you dialed is not a working number. It was hard to track her because we only knew her maiden name. There were lots of wrong numbers, wrong addresses, wrong emails. But we eventually found a number that worked, and we were pretty sure it was hers. Hello, my name is Neil Shea. I'm a journalist working on a story uh, in Crittenden County. And I, we called and called again, left message after message, appeal after appeal, until... The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. That's changed. Why? Didn't we leave messages before? Went straight to voicemail. She's clearly not... Yeah, she's blocked me. It's totally clear. Then we wrote emails, but she didn't answer. So we had a decision to make. Because we'd found her address. She lived in Tennessee. She'd be a middle-aged woman now. And the question was, should we go knock? I'm Neil Shea. And I'm Taylor Hom. This is Unfinished Deep South. Episode 7, The Stepdaughter. In the journalism world, there's a term for when you show up unannounced to someone's home. It's called doorstepping. It's an aggressive move, usually a last resort, because you never know what you're going to find. In this case, we wanted to tread extra carefully because we weren't sure what happened that day back in 1963. 
when Sam Burns allegedly shot Andrew Anderson, he had done it after Andrew was accused of sexually assaulting his stepdaughter. She was just eight years old at the time, and no matter what the details were, it was true that she found herself in the center of sudden violence and notoriety. So we weren't surprised that she didn't want to talk. But in the end, we decided to track her down for two reasons. First, she'd apparently been one of the last people to see Sam alive, and she might remember details that could help our investigation into Isidore's murder. And second, we'd become invested in Andrew's case. Even if she couldn't tell us what happened to Isidore, she almost certainly knew something about the events surrounding Andrew's death nine years later. We thought we might finally be able to clarify what happened in at least one of the killings that Crittenden County had tried to sweep under the rug. And we couldn't walk away from that. Thousands of African Americans had been murdered during the Jim Crow era. And false accusations of rape or sexual assault made by white women loomed over so many of these crimes. Andrew's sisters were convinced he was innocent, and here might be the only witness who could still set the record straight. So we hopped on a plane, rented a car, and headed towards the address we'd found. Neighborhood of modest brick houses. Huh. One. These are not the right numbers at all. This is kind of a cool hill to live on, though. It's pretty. The cherries are blossoming. After Sam Burns' stepdaughter blocked our calls and ignored our emails, we backed off for a couple months, hoping she might have a change of heart. We also called around in Marion, looking for locals who might be able to tell us more. But most people didn't know much about Sam or Andrew Anderson. And so as we drove towards what we thought was Sam's stepdaughter's house, we tried to come up with a strategy, a good opening line for a conversation that was going to be very uncomfortable. I feel like if she's about to shut the door in her face, the point to be made is that, like, doesn't mean we're not going to tell this story. People are talking about you. They're talking about Sam. They're talking about this incident. We are ethically required to reach out to you, get comment, give her that option. I don't know. Who knows? How are you feeling? I feel good. I think... It's weird, this one has been sort of hovering above us for a while, so it feels good to finally be able to, to do something. As we drove deeper into Tennessee, the towns got smaller, the churches got bigger, cows and horses were standing in the fields. We knew that no matter what we planned, it would probably go to shit as soon as we stepped out of the car, and we were nervous. I have an image of her in my mind, and it's so funny because it's based off of absolutely nothing. What does she look like in your mind? Like your, I kind of imagine her as like your mom, but blonde, I with kind a of, southern accent. <laughs> I kind of imagine her as your mom, but shorter, and with brown hair. Really? Yeah. What does this say about us? <laughs> Oh, wait. It sure does. Yeah, this is it. Here we go. We pulled into a driveway beside a new house with a porch running along the front. 
There were potted plants, a big green yard out back. And a middle-aged woman, who didn't look like either of our moms, walked up the driveway with a puzzled look on her face. And then... Things went to shit. We stopped recording as soon as we stepped out of the car. Last-minute decision. Seemed like the most respectful thing to do. We knew from the blocked calls and dodged emails that she didn't want to talk. So shoving a microphone in her face didn't seem like a good way to win her over. And so you won't hear how we asked the woman walking up the driveway if she was Sam Burns' stepdaughter, or if she'd gotten our calls and our emails. She looked pained. Yes, she said. I got your email, and I don't want to talk to you. She walked past us and headed for the house. We kept talking, kept trying, felt our hearts sinking as she disappeared inside. But then, someone else came out. It was a wild-haired man in a purple bathrobe. He stalked across the porch and started yelling. You have no idea what you're talking about, he said. You have no idea what she's been through. How dare you come after her like this? He kept shouting. I tried to keep calm, explain our intentions, but it wasn't working, and so I started shouting too. I could feel myself getting defensive, being dragged toward a fight I didn't want. So I took a breath and apologized to the man on the porch. I asked if we could start over, and he got quiet, and he walked back into the house. We stood there, confused. Was it over? Should we just leave? But then the man in the purple bathrobe came back out. And this time, he invited us inside. We looked at each other stunned and walked up the steps. Inside, the house was clean and cool. The man and the woman were husband and wife, as it turned out. They told us they'd moved in not long before and invited us to sit down with them in the living room. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. We had found Sam Burns' stepdaughter, the only person who might be able to tell us if Sam had lynched Isidore Banks in addition to killing Andrew Anderson. But this woman, she wasn't excited that we found her, though she was kind and warm, and eventually she agreed to tell us what she knew about Sam, what she knew about Andrew, and what she remembered from that day, back in 1963. But she didn't want to be recorded, and she would only talk to us if we didn't use her real name. We agreed to give her this privacy because we knew it was possible that she was a survivor of sexual assault. So we'll call her Julie, and we'll call her husband, Mike. When we first walked into the house, we spent some time clearing the air. We apologized for repeatedly calling and emailing, and Mike apologized for yelling at us. The couple had just arrived home from a trip, and Mike had been napping when we arrived, hence the wild hair in the bathrobe. He and Julie were freshly retired, expecting their first grandchild, 
and they'd been spending most of their time tending to the pasture out behind their house and building a stable for the horse and donkey they'd rescued. Mike and Julie also wanted to set something straight. They knew the landscape we'd just driven through, with its Trump flags and church signs warning about heavenly wrath. They wanted us to know. They loved rural life, but they were liberals, and often felt like blue outcasts adrift on a deep red sea. And even though our first attempts to reach out had upset them, our questions had actually jump-started their curiosity, and the couple had begun revisiting Julie's story, looking through old newspaper articles, searching the internet, stitching together Julie's memories. So, by the time we sat down with them, the couple was ready to talk. And here's what Julie remembered. On that July morning in 1963, she'd walked from her house in the center of Marion to a nearby field to see some horses corralled there. She was eight years old and loved horses, and so she lingered at the edge of the field a little longer than she was supposed to. Then, around noon, she started walking home. Julie said that when she was about a block or two from her house, she encountered an African-American man she'd never seen before. He spoke to her and then grabbed her and dragged her across a yard and behind a house. Julie said he exposed himself to her there, but she managed to wrench free and run away towards the street. At the same time, Julie's mother was out looking for her, driving slowly through the grid of houses. Julie said she saw her mom's car and ran frantically toward it. Her mother pulled over, opened the door, and hauled Julie inside. Julie told us she pointed back toward the man. She doesn't remember much more than that, except crying. Everything after is a blur. Julie's mother died in 2002, but back in 1963, she told reporters that she saw an African-American running after Julie. She told him to not move while she called the police. But he ran, and Julie's mother followed, trailing him in her car for a few blocks before a neighbor took over the chase in his car. Julie's mother then took her to a local doctor, who briefly examined her. Her clothing was given to the county sheriff, apparently as evidence, and she and her mother went home. For decades, Julie didn't know what had happened next. She didn't know until she was middle-aged that someone had been killed by a posse. And she didn't know until we told her that it was a 16-year-old boy, Andrew Anderson, because she remembers her attacker as a grown man. Julie says no one ever asked her for a description of the man. Not the police, not county prosecutors, not the FBI, not even her parents. And after that day, the family never really spoke about what happened. In 2007, the FBI began looking into Andrew's case. But Julie said they never contacted her. If they had, she said she would have told them what she told us, that she believes her attacker was a man, not a teenager. Which is to say, she thinks it's possible Andrew was innocent. We talk with Julie and Mike for hours. We took notes, drew maps, drank tea, shared everything we knew about Sam Burns and the day Andrew Anderson was killed. Julie and Mike were horrified. Horrified that a teenager had been shot and horrified that county officials had slapped a neat bow on it all after just a few hours of investigation. But they weren't really surprised at the way it went down. Julie and Mike had both grown up in Crittenden County and they'd come to see it as a corrupt and racist place run by what Mike described as a cabal of powerful people. After Mike finished college, the couple threw everything they had into the trunk of their car and they left Arkansas and rarely returned. 
But now, nearly 60 years later, we were asking Julie and Mike to look back, trying to understand what had happened. And as we talked over the details, documents, the conflicting accounts, Mike and Julie pointed out a lot of holes in the official story. Why, for instance, would Julie's attacker have chased her toward her mother's car? Why not run away in the opposite direction? Maybe Andrew had just happened to be nearby when someone else attacked Julie. We'd wondered the same thing, because Andrew himself may have understood that he was being framed. According to a transcript from the coroner's inquest, a sheriff's deputy had testified that after Andrew was shot, the deputy asked him why he'd assaulted the little girl. It wasn't me, Andrew said. I didn't do it. And then, as the white men crowded around him in the bean field, Andrew said, go on and kill me and get it over with. When we started looking into Andrew's killing, the story of what happened to him seemed so suspicious and his sister's belief in his innocence so certain that we thought maybe we'd be able to clear his name. The county has such a deep history of racism and corruption and the stains of it were all over Andrew's case. We thought Julie might confirm the story Andrew's sisters had told us, that he'd just helped her after she fell off a horse. Or tell us some other version, where Andrew was clearly in the wrong place at the wrong time. But at Julie's house, any hope we'd had of closing Andrew's case, of being able to say exactly what he did or didn't do, faded away. While Julie still believes she was assaulted by a man, an adult, she didn't feel confident enough to say that it definitely wasn't Andrew Anderson. And when we asked Julie for more details about her attacker, what he said, what he looked like, she didn't remember. Memories are fragile, shifting things. And she wondered if an 8-year-old would be able to distinguish between a 16-year-old and a grown man. And there's another problem. Implicit bias affects the way we perceive people. It renders African Americans as older, more dangerous, and more guilty. This bias is well-documented, and its implications are far-reaching. Wrongful convictions, harsher prison sentences, the shooting of African Americans by police. And in Andrew's case, it brought every memory into question. And we couldn't find a single surviving photograph of Andrew. Not in newspapers or FBI files, not even with the sisters. So we couldn't even show Julie what Andrew looked like. And with this, the truth of what happened, the possibility of clearing Andrew's name, began to slip away. Still, Julie said she was sure of this. Even if Andrew was the one who attacked her, he didn't deserve to die. And with no one else to ask, no more leads to chase, we had to set Andrew's case aside. We'd spent hours talking about Andrew Anderson. We were all hungry and tired. But there was still this whole other case we needed to ask Julie about. The murder of Isidore Banks. And so we told Julie that two sources in Marion had named her stepfather as the man who killed Isidore. Julie's jaw dropped. Mike blinked and shook his head. They'd never heard of Isidore. Never heard Sam Burns mention him or talk about any lynchings. Julie told us that Sam was certainly racist. Most white people in Crittenden were. But right away, she doubted Sam would have been physically capable of doing the things that had been done to Isidore. Julie said that sometime in 1953, the year before Isidore was lynched, Sam was in an awful car accident. Sam's leg had been crushed in the crash, and then, in the hospital, it got infected. 
So he stayed in the hospital, bedridden for nearly a year, while the injured leg shriveled and stiffened, becoming more like a wooden leg than one made of flesh. Julie described how he had to drag it along behind him while he walked. It was so bad kids in town made fun of his limp. And when he painted houses, Sam had to tug his leg up the ladder, his foot thumping over the rungs. And while Julie had accepted that her stepfather had probably shot Andrew Anderson, she still sometimes wondered about it. Wondered how such a disabled man could have been part of the posse that chased Andrew across town. Back in 1963, Sam Burns told a reporter that he didn't shoot Andrew. But at least two newspapers reported that he did. And in the FBI files, the language is unmistakable. Anderson was shot by Sam Burns. Still, Julie and Mike suspected there was more to the story. They thought the town's wealthy white leaders might have simply found a convenient scapegoat in Sam a poor man who could take the blame for the whole town. Pinning Andrew's death on Sam transformed what might easily have been called a lynching into an act of righteous vengeance by an aggrieved stepfather. This version of the story wasn't just easier to explain, it was totally acceptable. And it spared the town from the bad press a lynching could bring. Julie said that when she was a kid, Sam was often depressed and would sometimes experience paranoid episodes possibly as a result of PTSD from his service in World War II. Julie's mom eventually divorced him, and Julie didn't have much to do with him after that. But then in the 1990s, Julie learned that he was ill. So she and Mike drove to Arkansas, where they found Sam living alone in a squalid trailer. No one had visited him for a long time. He suffered from paranoia and hallucinations, and he needed medical treatment. Julie eventually found him a place in a Tennessee veteran's home, and that's where he died in 1999. We were there for five hours. Which way do you think I'm supposed to go? Take your right up here. Straight ahead? Go straight. We left Julian Mike's house long after the sun went down and headed out into the damp Tennessee darkness. We wondered what Julie's memories of Sam meant for our investigation into Isidore's lynching. Our reporting showed that Isidore was being harassed before his death. He'd been one of the most prominent farmers in the county. He was strong, wealthy, respected. And he had resources. In the weeks before he was lynched, Isidore armed himself, hired bodyguards, even sent some of his family away to another city to keep them safe. Because whoever was after him had resources too, enough to make Isidore's life very dangerous. At first, we'd wondered if Sam was hired as a hitman, or maybe he was part of a lynch mob that had gone after Isidore. But there was nothing to suggest that, no motive, no evidence. And given Sam's physical and mental state after his car accident, it seemed unlikely. We were pretty sure that if Sam Burns had anything to do with Isidore's death, he wasn't acting alone. So why was his name the only one that came up in connection to the crime? I don't know. I do know that Sam Burns said he was a murderer. This is Rosalind O'Neill. We chased after Sam Burns because one source told us they'd heard Sam killed Isidore. And that was supported by Rosalind. But after we talked to Julie, we went back to Rosalind and told her what we'd found. She started to question her own memory. But now I'm wondering which murder. We are having trouble, as you just explained, the motive, like putting them together, putting those two together. Well, Dan Burns told me he did it, but I think he did the, he did kill that guy. But it was a different guy, and I just never realized he killed, you know, killed a different guy. 
Rosalind moved to Crittenden County in the mid-1960s, after Isidore and Andrew were killed. People still whispered about both murders, but Rosalind only ever heard about Isidore's. When Sam Burns confessed that he'd killed an African-American, Rosalind simply assumed he was talking about Isidore. But thinking about it now, she remembered that all Sam had actually said was, you know I killed that N-word. And he was probably talking about Andrew. We realized that in the minds of many white people in Marion, the murders of Andrew and Isidore had faded over the years, mingling even as they disappeared, until they just kind of merged. Sometimes we'd ask people about Isidore, and in conversation, realize they were talking about Andrew, or vice versa. Two African Americans, two murders, one memory. And once again, we're back to square one. You have to remember what the population was then. Marion was a small town in 54. There just weren't a lot of people here. So you're kind of pushing the limit on those, the, the first source type people. And the problem being of the type of horrific event that it was, it probably wasn't much discussed with the second generation. And I think a lot of people that possibly who were asked honestly don't know. The motive, I don't understand. I mean, I, I just can't, because that was a horrific crime. But and you know yourself, it couldn't have been nothing but one person. What if there was more than one killer? If a mob had lynched Isidore, it would be harder to say exactly who had blood on their hands. Two years of reporting, dozens of interviews, thousands of pages of documents. And it didn't seem like we were that much closer to naming Isidore's killer. We were stuck and frustrated. So we decided to try something different. Really different. Next time on Unfinished Deep South. Thank you for calling the Isidore Banks tip line. Banks was a farmer and a father, a businessman, and a veteran of World War I. Banks was lynched in Marion in June 1954. The sheriff and the FBI investigated his murder, but the case was never solved. We are researching Banks' story. If you have any information about what happened to him, please leave us a message here. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Stocks from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of East Store Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Thank you.